This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Nutshell Politics this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, My name is Justin Kinney, and I will be your host today as we discuss a current event that's been in the news of of late, which is the interesting case of the young woman known as Hoda Mutana. Now, this is actually a really fascinating case. It kind of melds uh, some of my favorite topics, uh, including terrorism and radicalization, but also big current events and some major issues that are on the, the minds of a lot of politicians nowadays, with the idea of citizenship and and what that means. And so let's go ahead and dive right in. So for those of you who haven't heard this story, let me kind of back up and we'll, we'll start at the beginning. There is a woman named Hoda Muthana. That's H-O-D-A-M-U-T-H-A-N-A, Hoda Muthana. Now, she is of Yemeni descent from Yemen. That is, uh, her father was a, a Yemeni diplomat for the United Nations originally. But uh, she was born in America, lived in Alabama, so deep south. But she is now most famous for her actions that took place in 2014. Now, she is currently 24, which means in 2014 she was 20. And her parents had given her uh, a fairly large sum of money to provide for college tuition. And so she was headed to college and unknown to her parents, she took that money that was set aside for her tuition and used it to flee the country and to ultimately join up with the terrorist group known as the Islamic State or ISIS. And she is now known as what's unfortunately become kind of a growing trend of young women leaving their homes and joining the group known as ISIS brides. Now, the the concept of an ISIS bride is one of these young women, usually actually younger than 20, so she's actually kind of on the older end of this trend. A lot of times you'll see 15, 16, 17-year-old girls, primarily across Europe, do this, but they run away from home and they go try to join up with this group to become brides of a lot of these ISIS fighters. And there's a lot of hypotheses and theories as to you know what they're doing, why in the world would they do this, and we'll talk about some of those as we get later into the episode. But uh, Mutana has become one of the most famous because she recently ha- decided that she made a mistake and has renounced what she did and wants to return to the United States. She's claiming that she is a, a United States citizen and wants to come home. Uh, But the United States has basically said no. Uh, This is uh, not a recent thing. Actually, it goes back at least till 2016. Uh, Under the Obama administration, she was told she was no longer a citizen, or in fact, I don't think that she had ever been one. Uh, We'll talk about why that is in a minute as well. But Trump has reiterated this and said, we're not taking your back. You know, once you've kind of left to join a terrorist group that's at odds with the United States, that's considered treason and she's not allowed back. And so this has become a bit of a fight over whether or not she is actually a citizen, whether or not she was able to renounce her citizenship by what she did and what her ultimate fate should be. Should we bring her back to the United States and and try her as a citizen? Does she not even get that? And we should just leave her and not let her back into the country. And uh, so this has led to a lot of questions about citizenship and 
and what it means for a young woman to flee the country. Now, again, she was 20, so she was an adult. She was a student at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. Uh, so she's, this is not like a minor case of you know a, a young girl who under the age of 18. But this has been complicated a little bit because she now has a son who is a year and a half old and really has known no life other than the, the terribleness of ISIS and the refugee camp that they're currently living in. All right, that's the overview of the story. Let me back up a little bit, and we're going to kind of talk in more detail about what, what happened with her, why she did this, and kind of what the, the implications are going forward and what the possibilities are for what we could do. So, uh, as I mentioned, Hoda Muthana was a 20-year-old college student, University of Alabama, Birmingham, and she was given money by her parents. Uh, in particular, her dad was a, a diplomat, so fairly well-to-do, well-off. And they had given her tuition, but she told them that she was leaving to go on a field trip to Atlanta. So she told them she was going to be out of you know, out of the state on a trip for a little while. And she, unknown to them, instead went to the, the school's office, withdrew from school, and took the reimbursed tuition. So the tuition had already been paid, but because she withdrew early enough, she got the tuition reimbursed, bought a plane ticket for herself, flew to Turkey, and then kind of made her way through Turkey to Syria and found her way to ISIS. Now, the big question here is is why? This is, is this a kind of a trend that's been taking place across Europe mostly, although we've seen it here as well. You know, what in the world is going on here? Why, why are these young women doing this? What type of value do they see in you know, leaving everything they've known in a, a Western country like, like the United States or, you know, the Netherlands is another popular place where this has happened several times and fleeing to join a terrorist group halfway around the world in a, you know, a third world country undergoing a civil war and the group being something that commits horrific acts and beheadings and, you know, terrorist violence against civilians, you know, why in the world would you do this? And a lot of this, actually, this, again, partly is why I find this so interesting, gets back to the concept of social media. Uh, now, for those of you who know me, you know that kind of my area of research is this kind of confluence between terrorist groups and radicalization on social media uh, and, and this kind of social media enterprise and platforms that exist out there and how groups are using these platforms to target individuals, mostly the youth. Uh, sometimes this is young men, other times it's young women as well. But a lot of what's happening here, and again, Muthana is a little bit on the older age range for this, but still being a college student, you're still kind of going through this. But the reason these groups target the youth is a, in part the same reason that you see them, you see gangs target the youth or cults target the youth. They, they target the youth because the youth are still kind of going through this transition period where they're finding their own identity. And so they're vulnerable for, for one reason or another. Uh, usually they're targeting what, what would be called like the disaffected youth. So this would be somebody who they feel is feeling out of place, discriminated against in some way, you know, maybe a minority group that they feel like doesn't fit in. And so groups tend to target these types of, of people who are, are looking for a place to belong, looking for a home, looking for primarily an identity, something that has meaning. I think one of the biggest things that everybody goes through you know, in their early life is trying to figure out you know, what's my purpose in life? What meaning does my life really have? You know, and trying to find some sort of identity that can provide that meaning and can provide a purpose, and a particularly an important purpose if possible. And so 
when, when a group comes along and says, hey, we can provide that for you, and we can provide a purpose that's not only important, but is so important that you know people are willing to die for it. You know, that's that's a pretty big deal. And and so a lot of these these young people are being manipulated by by groups because they feel like they're out of place. Uh, they feel like something's missing. And a group comes along and offers them an identity, offers them a purpose. And so it's quite possible this, this is kind of where she was coming from. Uh, she bought into this you know hook, line, and sinker originally. Uh, she actually used her Twitter account to put out several, shall we say, anti-American tweets and things. She's used them to call for the, the murder of Americans on her social media accounts. I'm going to just read one of these, uh, pardon some of the, the language and the violence in this, but I want to read one so you can see what types of things she was putting out there on her social media. Uh, she, so she tweeted this from a, an account that's now suspended, but she said, go on drive-bys and spill all of their blood or rent a big truck and drive all over them. Veterans, Patriot Memorial Day parades, go on drive-bys and spill all of their blood or rent a big truck and drive all over them. Kill them. Now, that was, that was something that she tweeted back in, I think it was 2014 or 2015. Now, th- that has changed. And she's been there. She, she was joined them, like I said, back in 2014. Uh, 20 years old. By 2016, she's ma- she's changed her mind. She realizes this is not something that she wants to do. She has renounced her faith. She has claimed that she was uh, young and naive, and I think she used the word arrogant. Although I'd have to find that exact quote again in a minute. Oh, here, here we go. So she wrote. Uh, she gave, gave this statement to the media. She said uh, she was a naive, angry, and arrogant young woman. Uh, During my years in Syria, I would see and experience a way of life and the terrible effects of war which changed me. Seeing bloodshed up close changed me. Motherhood changed me. Seeing friends, children, and the men I married dying changed me. And so she's kind of changed her mind on this. And psychologically, this actually makes a lot of sense. It's it's one thing to, to claim to represent some sort of ideology or believe in something. But when you start seeing the repercussions of that up up close and personal things can change um, especially seeing you know bloodshed as she mentioned I think you know motherhood is one of those huge things that changes people it's one of those things motherhood that changes all women when they go through it so it makes sense that it would change her too to have a kid in this sort of environment and so she actually fled the group Isis and uh, is currently in a refugee camp run by the Kurdish people uh, if you haven't been listening to my podcast long. I actually did a whole episode on the Kurds and who they are a while back. But the Kurdish people run some of these refugee camps. And so she is currently at one of those camps in Syria uh, with her son, who is 18 months old. Uh, but in her time in this organization, she, as I mentioned, was a bride for actually three different Islamic State fighters, uh, all who died one after another. But it is important to note that probably in part due to her a little bit older age for a lot of these brides, she was not just an ISIS bride. She was a woman of some influence in the group. Uh, she, as I said, she she traveled to join ISIS of her own accord and not with anybody. She left on her own and she took an active role within the organization. Uh, she was given a, a nickname of sorts in the group that translates to Mother of Jihad and was mostly a, a social media activist for the group, posting a lot of tweets and things. One such example that if you guys remember the attack on Charlie Hebdo, she you know cheered that on social media. And so she was kind of a, a cheerleader or a social media influencer for the group and went on to have quite a bit of consequence and influence in the organization. 
Now, she has claimed that she wants to return to the United States. As I said, she has kind of renounced this, said she was naive and arrogant, despite being you know 20 years old, not 15 or 16 like many of these. But she has basically admitted that she's willing to come back to the United States and face the legal consequences for her action. But she wants to come back, be here with you know family, to have her son be with family and have, have him in a better situation than a refugee camp in Syria. And she would essentially be charged with treason, right? So the Constitution talks about treason. Uh, it's, it defines treason as, I'll actually read the whole quote on it. So it says, treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies and giving them aid and comfort. No person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or on confession in open court. So she's basically admitted to this and she's willing to face those legal consequences. It would be a slam dunk case for any prosecutor who took this on. If she came back, I mean, there's, there's no chance that she would be you know, released on this. She would be convicted very easily, a slam dunk conviction. But what's happening now is that the Trump administration ha is making an attempt. And again, this does not just start with Trump. It goes back to Obama as well to claim that she's not a U.S. citizen. And this is kind of a tricky claim because she was born in the United States, but was born to a diplomat. Now, there are some special cases with children of diplomats and how they are treated in terms of their citizenship. Now, the actual law on this comes from the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, and they basically say that a person who was born in the United States, but to an accredited foreign diplomatic officer is not subject to U.S. law and is not automatically considered American citizen at birth. And so there's this kind of weird little hole in the law where we typically consider people who are born in the United States as, as citizens, right? Naturalized citizens, or, or sorry, birthright citizens, but someone who was born to an accredited diplomat at the time is not automatically considered this. And so that you get into some questions as to whether or not her father was considered an accredited diplomat at the time of her birth. Uh, he was no longer in a diplomatic position, but he still held diplomatic status at the time of her birth. Uh, and she, was, she was born in, in New Jersey, by the way. So born in New Jersey, grew up in, in Alabama. Now, the Obama administration was the, the first one to claim that she was not a citizen. And uh, while she had been given a passport, which usually means she is a citizen, the Obama administration told the family that they were going to revoke her passport. And again, this goes back to January of 2016. But her family is now arguing, and actually they've uh, issued a lawsuit against the U.S. government saying that because her father was no longer a diplomat at the time, that she should be considered a citizen. She held a legitimate U.S. passport, and that actually that last part is definitely true. She was actually issued passports on two different occasions, and so her family is trying to fight this and get her listed as a citizen, so she can come back and face charges here. Again, nobody is under any sort of illusion that she's not going to face legal consequences. Biggest question here is is mostly about citizenship. Now, she is currently being held in a a camp, uh, kind of a refugee camp in Syria, and this is a specific refugee camp that is reserved for family members of ISIS fighters who are of who are from foreign countries. And so it's specifically for people like her that have kind of either left the organization or been abandoned or, or some something. Now, the camp itself is fairly large. There's something like 15 to 1600 people there, uh, all women and children. Again, mostly these are, are brides or children of fighters who have left the organization for one reason or another from a lot of different countries. It's close to 50 countries in this camp. 
some of these women in the camp have not actually renounced the group, but they are no longer a, like a part of the group for one reason or another. So these are not all people who are trying to leave and have renounced the, the ideology and, and such. Um, and so this has actually caused a bit of a rift. And Muthana herself has said that she is, is very nervous about speaking out about this because speaking out against the group could get her in some trouble with some of the other you know, ISIS wives, ISIS brides who are in this camp at the same time. Now, she, to her credit, has basically claimed that you know, she's admitted everything. She admitted that she was, you know, a radical. She claimed that she had been brainwashed through social media online. And so the question has be, kind of become, what do we do with her? As I said, this kind of gets a back to the citizenship question. Because if she is a U.S. citizen, then the United States has a legal obligation to bring her back to the United States and, and deal with her here, even if it's simply to put her on trial. Uh, however... If she, is no, if she is not considered a citizen, then the, that legal obligation goes away. And so the question here is, is mostly about citizenship. And again, if she is considered a citizen, then her family's lawyers are arguing that she is being deprived of constitutional rights of, of kind of a trial. Now, this question, as I said, is fairly complicated because we're getting to the, the nitty-gritty of whether or not she is considered subject to the jurisdiction of the United States at the time of her birth. And the, the U.S. has kind of changed their position on this. As I said, she's been given a passport in the past uh, on two different occasions, which 99% of the time indicates U.S. citizenship. There are a couple weird cases where you can become a, a non-citizen national, particularly if you're born in kind of a, in some, some of these very far-flung places, but it's very, very rare. We're talking like a handful of people. So being given a passport is pretty much a decent indication that at one point the U.S. government felt she was a citizen. Now, all of that said, when she was issued a passport back uh, you know, years and years ago, there were some challenges to her citizenship even then. I should just, just at least mention that. Uh, the government did challenge this before giving her a passport, although they ultimately did. Now, in 2016, by the time 2016 had come around, she had burned her passport, given it up. When, whenever you join ISIS, this is a pretty common thing they make you do is shed any sort of allegiance to foreign powers, including foreign governments. And so she tweeted a photo of herself and several other women uh, who were coming from the West to join ISIS. And she shared this photo of her throwing her passport into a bonfire saying, you know, there's no need for these anymore. And so because of this, the Obama administration declared her passport and her citizenship invalid. And so they, they actually, they even went further than that. They went, went back and said, we never should have given her one in the first place. Her citizenship had never been valid to begin with. All right, so let's talk about this diplomatic status. So the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution gives birthright citizenship. And by this, it means anyone who was born on U.S. soil is considered subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, and then they become citizens. Now, this has been challenged recently for completely other reasons, dealing with illegal immigrants or you know, undocumented immigrants who come to the United States because there's some questions as to whether or not they are considered subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. And so there are some, there's some very legitimate disagreement on that case, kind of on both sides, but pretty much everybody has agreed that it does not apply to children born to foreign diplomats. And the reason for this is because of diplomatic immunity. The concept of diplomatic immunity is that any sort of diplomat who comes to the United States and generally considered their family as well 
are exempt from U.S. jurisdiction. So they can't be charged with certain crimes or certain laws. Uh, they are not considered subject to the general laws of, of the country. So if they commit some sort of crime or something, the U.S. government can kick them out, but they can't necessarily put them on trial. They can send them back to their home country. There are some exceptions to that, uh, depending on the severity of the crime. But by and large, this diplomatic immunity means that they are still citizens of their home country, not the United States, and therefore not subject to the United States laws, to the jurisdiction. And so the argument goes that children born to foreign diplomats also then become citizens of their home country, subject to jurisdiction there, and not subject to the jurisdiction in the United States. So how does that apply to, to Muthana's family? So her father came to the United States from Yemen back in 1990, and he was a diplomat. Uh, he was representing his, his home country at the United Nations, and the United Nations are headquartered in, in New York City, so they were living in New Jersey, just across the border, and so he was considered a diplomat here in the United States with, dip, with diplomatic immunity. However, Yemen underwent a civil war in the mid-1990s, and so his job kind of vanished, and so he lost his job, and there, then, therefore, he lost his diplomatic immunity as well. Now, the question becomes when exactly he lost that diplomatic immunity, because his daughter, Hoda, who we're talking about, was born in 1994, kind of late 1994, I believe it was October, and if he lost his immunity prior to that, then he would be subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, and so would she, making her a citizen. If it was after that, she would not be. Now, the U.S. government says its records say that he held his diplomatic status until February of, of 1995, about four months after her birth. Actually, closer to three months, actually three and a half. And so, therefore, she was born when he was still considered a diplomat, still considered to have diplomatic immunity, still not subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, and therefore his family was also not subject as well, making her not a U.S. citizen, but a Yemeni one. Now, he claims that he surrendered his diplomatic immunity card earlier that year, months before his daughter was born. And so the question is, when exactly does he lose that immunity? Does he lose it when he surrenders it? And legal experts kind of disagree on this. Uh, some say, you know, once you've surrendered it, that you've given up that. Others say there's kind of a process. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean he lost his diplomatic status on that date. And they point to things like um, diplomats who have been removed from the job for one reason or another still have kind of a like a, a residual immunity that carries over as they pack and get ready to leave and go back to their home country. And so that, that while they've technically lost diplomat status, you know, they have a little bit of residual leftover immunity. And so the argument is even if he surrendered his card, you know, his diplomatic immunity status, he might still have some of that res residual immunity that carries over. Uh, and so there's, there's a lot of questions here. Now, after she was born, both of her parents got green cards. Hoda could have gotten a green card herself because she was considered a dependent of her parents. But her parents thought that she was a U.S. citizen because of her birth, and so they didn't even apply for one. And so this becomes a problem a decade or so later when he applies for a passport for her. Because the government said its records showed that she was not a citizen, and her father countered with some information coming from the United Nations that showed he was a diplomat through September, I think it was September 1st of 94, again, prior to her birth. And so they granted her passport, they renewed her passport 10 years later, and almost immediately after that, she leaves the country to go join ISIS, burns her passport, and she becomes a member of this terrorist organization. 
Now, that feels like a good spot to pause for just a minute. This is turning into a bit of a longer episode than I'd anticipated. So we're going to take just a short break. I'll throw in a quick commercial. Allow me a chance to rest my voice for a second. And I will be back with you guys to continue the story of Hoda Muthana on the other side. So please stick with me, and I'll be back with you guys in about 60 seconds. All right, guys, welcome back from that short break. I appreciate you guys sticking with me through the, the 60-second commercial. So let's go ahead and dive back into the story of Hoda Muthana. Now, in 2016, the government under Obama sends her family a letter saying that her passport has officially been revoked. The letter goes further and says that the passport had been issued in error. Now, in theory, she could have challenged this. She could have appealed the decision, gone to a hearing, tried to get her passport back. But for, I, I think, obvious reasons at the time, you know, she was pretty well encamped within the ISIS organization, and she was not really looking to come back. And this is, again, very early in 2016. Now, this has become even more complicated, too, because of the introduction of her son to the picture. Now, her son is about 18 months old, and if she is a U.S. citizen, that complicates things. Because if, if she's a U.S. citizen and she has a child outside the United States... Her child is also considered a U.S. citizen. That's, that's a law that's been in place for a long time. If you're a U.S. citizen abroad and you have your kid there, they are also considered a U.S. citizen. But if she is not a U.S. citizen, then her son isn't either. And so this, this issue has now been affecting two people, both her and her son. Now, again, her family is, is suing this. It's probably a move out of desperation more than anything. But in the meantime, she is kind of stuck in Syria in this refugee camp trying to figure out a way to get back to the United States. And so let's let's move forward a little bit. I, I want to talk about what the possibilities are that could happen here and maybe even kind of hint at where I think we, we should be moving going forward. So there's a few different possibilities for what could happen here. Uh, the first one is that she could be granted her citizenship again, brought back to the United States, put on trial. Again, it'll be a slam dunk conviction. She'd be convicted thrown in jail, long sentence because treason is a pretty serious thing, but notably she would be back in the United States in U.S. prisons, uh, and her son would be able to be raised by family members and would have a much better life here in the United States being raised by, by his grandparents than in some sort of refugee camp in Syria under the constant threat of violence. So that's option one. Uh, option two is that they could, the United States could just leave her there. Right, so they could leave her in this refugee camp in Syria, wildly unknown what would happen to them. In theory, the the Islamic State would probably try to hunt them down. I mean, this is a case where she has renounced their ideology. She has spoken out against them. So ISIS probably has a little bit of a vendetta against uh, her and her son. And if they are caught, they would most likely be killed. Uh, she would definitely be killed. Uh, her son may or may not. They may try to capture the son and raise him to be a fighter down the road. That is unlikely to happen anytime soon. ISIS has been knocked back severely in terms of their strength in Syria. And so it's unlikely that they would see, or that they would really have the time to try to track down this, this woman who was kind of deep in Kurdish territory because they have to fight off a bunch of Kurdish soldiers to get there anyway. So it's, it's just unlikely, but that is definitely a possibility. And if ISIS ever gains more strength, that would put them in danger. So so that, that's kind of option two. Now, the third option is kind of a, a mashup of the two. And to be honest, I don't know the legal implications of it, but it would be at least possible because at this point she's considered citizenless. Like, she's not a citizen of any country. 
where we could bring her back and charge her as a foreign national of some sort with without actually granting her the citizenship. Again, I don't quite know or understand the legal implications of that. I'm not a, you know, a lawyer, especially not a lawyer in that area of the law, but that would at least be a potential possibility. Uh, we have obviously imprisoned foreign nationals before. The whole scandal over Guantanamo Bay was was that. But the question of how we would actually bring her back here for trial would be a, a pretty tricky one to deal with legally speaking. And of course, as I said, this now affects her son as well. Now her son is a is the son of a Tunisian fighter, her second husband. Again, she has had three husbands, uh, all who have died. And her second husband was was killed back in 2017. And she, again, ended up remarrying. I think she, I think she actually divorced him before he was killed. But she eventually flees the group. Uh, she actually has claimed that she tried to flee once earlier on. We don't really know the exact date on it, but probably in 2017 or 2018. And she had tried to defect and that they had caught her, imprisoned her, tortured her, raped her, beat her. Uh, she does eventually escape in January of this year and surrenders to American troops. And she gets put into this refugee camp alongside another uh, citizen who's a, a joint citizen of Canada and the United States named Kimberly Pullman. Uh, she actually traveled to uh, ISIS territory as one of these ISIS brides in 2015 as well. Uh, she has also renounced the ideology and, and wanted to be brought back. There's, so this is not the only case. Muthana is probably the most famous one right now, although there are several other cases going through the similar situation. There's actually another famous one going on right now with, with a, a UK citizen who fled at the age of 15. So there's some, some age issues with that one. But Muthana's case has gotten the most publicity here in the United States. And as I said, there's, there's, there's a few different options where we could go down this route. Personally, and the, I, I don't talk about my personal politics on this show very often. Uh, I like to keep this pretty bipartisan or nonpartisan, I should say. But I, I have, I, I wanted to express a little bit of one one opinion that I have here, and this is actually one that might put me at odds with people on, quote, my side of the aisle, but I tend to think that we should bring her back to the United States and try her here. Now, whether or not that means declaring her a citizen and trying her or, or finding some other avenue, I don't know, but my reasoning on this is mostly tied to her son. And I'm certainly not trying to minimize what she did or, or anything like that. Obviously, actions have consequences, and her actions are about as serious as they can get. But this is a child who has American ties, has American grandparents uh, who have lived in this country for 30 years. But if we don't bring them here to America, we're essentially punishing this young child for the sins of his parents. And as a country, I, I think bringing them back would be a more moral option. Again, the legal issues here may be too complicated, but... But I really think as a country, we can strive to, to do better and find a more moral option for this young child. And maybe this is just me being compassionate for a little kid in a, a war-torn country. But by leaving her there, we're also leaving and essentially condemning a young child to a life of violence and horrific, horrific things, even worse things that would happen if they're captured. And the whole idea of a young child being raised in that environment, we've seen that over and over and over again lead to radicalization. And so I worry that, you know, leaving a young child like that in a situation could actually end up radicalizing him further. And, and he will never know anything different, you know, other than violence. Now, as I said, that may be, you know, my personal compassion for, for kids. I have a bit of a soft spot for kids in situations like that. 
but I, I really think this is a situation that's gone beyond her, right? There, there's a young, innocent child involved in this. And while I understand some of the legal issues with, with her, we're in a situation where it's, it's a borderline case. You know, I mean, this is not a clear-cut case. If this, was, if this was clear-cut that she was not a citizen, then sure, you can you can deny that and go down that route. But this is a case where it's pretty borderline to begin with. And even if he lost his diplomatic status, we're talking like a month before she was born or you know, up to you know, three or four months after. So we're talking at most a period of a couple months where this question is, is taking place. And this is a woman, again, she is 20 years old. So when she left, she's now 24. She was 20 years old. So she was not a child. And the consequences for this should be strong. They should be severe. Uh, she should not in any way, shape, or form be given a lenient sentence on this. This is, I mean, it, it's, it's treason. It's absolutely treason. She was an adult when she did it. But I worry that we're now condemning a child to a similar fate as her. He's done nothing wrong. Uh, his father was a fighter, yes, but this kid is, is a year and a half old, 18 months. He, he has ties to you know, Americans. You know, he has ties to, to a diplomat who's been here for 30 years. You know, he would have you know, a community here, a family who could take care of him better than than she can in this refugee camp. And now, I don't know a lot about their family. I, I do know her father has given an interview on this, and he basically only agreed to give this interview in the hopes of preventing other kids from being brainwashed too. I just worry that by denying citizenship, we're also kind of condemning a child to a potential life of radicalization. That would be a worst case scenario, but even at best, a life of, of violence and poverty in a, a refugee camp in a war-torn, civil war-torn country. But either way, obviously, this is a, a very sensitive, very tricky subject. It's it's hard to really understand on, on really any side of it. But before we kind of close out the episode, I kind of touched on this already earlier, but the idea of social media and how this has been used. She was given a cell phone upon graduating high school. And while her family was very, shall we say, conservative with the rules of the phone, and her father would routinely kind of check the phone to make sure that there was nothing on there, that is what ultimately allowed her to have connection. Now, obviously, I'm not coming out against smartphones or anything like that, but understand that the more globalized the world has become with social media apps and things, the more connected we are, not only to friends and family, but to potential bad influence as well. And groups like this, whether they're terrorist groups or you know halfway across the world or they're cults you know, just down the street from you or gangs in, in your city, they have connection as well. And that's just something to be, be aware of. And it, she even has kind of come out and admitted that her, I want to say conversion into the, the radical extremist mindset was in part due to her connections that she found to scholars and various extremist interpretations of Islam that she found online. And she admits that, you know, she was looking for something that had meaning. You know, life had a lot more meaning. This is actually, I'll give you a quote from her. She said, I felt like my life was so bland without it. Talking about her religious life. Uh, life has so much more meaning when you know why you're here. And so she started watching a lot of scholars lecture online and she became more and more influenced by these online lectures, much more so than kind of her local, her local religious community. And her family actually at first was was very pleased by this. They, they saw her as becoming more devout, becoming, you know, she was caring more about her faith. And they had no idea that this kind of rededication and redevotion to the faith would lead her to ISIS. 
but her evolution into a kind of a jihadi mindset was both influenced and supported by social media. Uh, one of the things that they found kind of later is that she had developed a second kind of secret Twitter account. She'd set up the, the secret Twitter account and had thousands of followers that she gained. Um, and through this secret account that she had, you know, she was interacting with known ISIS members and ISIS supporters, including other people who had fled their homes to go join uh, the militant group in in Syria. And so she would be very po- you know, she would be very active in posting on these accounts. And the friends that that knew her said that she was very very different online than she was in person. You know, she was much more of an activist and controversial online, whereas in person she was quiet and shy and these sorts of things. It was almost like a complete personality flip. And this kind of secret Twitter account became almost like an alter ego for her. And this is not that uncommon for for people, you know, where they they feel stifled by their home life because their their parents are super strict or they just don't feel like they fit in in school or whatever and so they find other outlets for it. And so she essentially did this but took it to the extreme. And as she did this too, she started to isolate herself. And this is something else I actually deal with some of this in my own research, but Traditionally, radicalization and recruitment is done through in-person isolating people. You take them away from their more moderate societal influences and put them by themselves or in small groups where they're only surrounded by people of similar ideology. But with the, introduc- the introduction of social media has changed that to an extent. And what they've started now encouraging is people to kind of self-isolate. And so she started to do this as well, a kind of a conscious choice. And so she started to lose friends uh, and... And there were actually a few friends who even started to get a little bit concerned about her. But despite all of this, her parents still had no idea. And by the time she had joined ISIS, I mean, it was, it was, it was too late. Her parents had no idea. I mean, and she had lied to them, told them she was headed on a trip to, to Atlanta. Uh, her parents actually weren't thrilled about that to begin with. And then they were waiting for her to come back. And then she calls from Turkey and says that she's in Turkey and going to join ISIS. Uh, her father, to his credit, immediately calls the FBI. He doesn't even hesitate. He calls the FBI so that the authorities can stop her before she gets there. But they couldn't, they ultimately couldn't stop her and she arrived in Syria the very next day. If you're at all interested in reading more about her and kind of her actual story, you can read about her family. Her father gives this long interview. I would recommend that there's a story I don't usually recommend BuzzFeed, but they actually did a pretty good article on BuzzFeed News called Gone Girl, an interview with an American in ISIS. And it it really talks about kind of why this American college student ran away. And it goes into a lot more detail than I have on this this podcast. I would recommend that if you're at all interested in this. It is very interesting. The interview is actually a few years old, which is uh, so, so you don't get a lot of the the questions of citizenship now, but it talks a lot about who she was and how she got to ISIS, how she was radicalized, kind of going through the social media again. I've touched on some of that, but if you're interested in a lot more detail on that and her father and her family, I would recommend that. And again, I don't recommend BuzzFeed a lot as a a news source. Sometimes it's kind of entertaining, but it's not usually known for hard-hitting news, but it was actually a pretty fascinating piece. And I, I would recommend checking that out if you're interested more in the story. And so kind of in conclusion, uh, this is a, a very tricky case that deals with terrorism and social media and the, the problems of social media, but also with birthright citizenship and diplomatic immunity and, and what this all means. And 
honestly, I don't really know where this is going to end up. I, I kind of suspect that eventually they're going to find some sort of medium ground between you know giving her citizenship or, or declaring she's a citizen and and leaving her there. I don't I don't think we'll actually end up leaving her there. I, I think somebody, even if it's another country, will eventually bring her out. At bare minimum, being able to talk to her, interview her, and interrogate her, for lack of a better term, could provide a lot of insight into the organization because she was not just you know someone completely behind the scenes. She actually did a lot of work in recruiting for them. And so we could actually learn a lot from her. And I really think there's benefit in the United States bringing her back uh, to talk to her. And she'd be much more willing, I think, to, to do so if we were willing to bring her back to the United States and, and allow her child to be raised here instead of in a refugee camp in kind of Kurdish Syria. So I don't know what's going to happen here. And as I said, I have a real soft spot for this this child and the horrors that, that he's already seen in his short 18 months of life. But it's, it's really tricky because this is a woman who essentially, whether or not she had citizenship to begin with, I mean, she's, I think you even make an argument that she renounced it and that she no longer has it anymore and shouldn't be treated as such. You know, she definitely committed treason and whether or not she's considered a citizen, she will face consequences for this if she's brought back. And she absolutely should. I mean, this is this is something that was, I mean, it's, it's horrifying, some of the things that this group has done. And to be a, an active, willing participant in that is not something that, that should be taken lightly. But with that, I think I'm going to go ahead and kind of close out the episode. I hope that was interesting for you guys. It's a, a fascinating story. I'm sure we'll have a lot more developments. Honestly, I'm recording this over the weekend, and I'll drop it on Monday. And by then, we may even have more developments than I know right now. Uh, it's been changing almost day by day with what's going on with her and her son and the, the situation. It's a very tricky case, and I I admit I, I struggle sometimes with how to, to approach it because I kind of see both sides to an extent. But it's definitely something to keep an eye on going forward, and I would highly recommend that. Uh, so with that, let's go ahead and, and close things out for this week. If you are interested in getting in contact with me, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Justin R underscore Kinney. Please find me there. You can send me a message, you know, tweet at me, hit that follow button as well. I would really appreciate that. And if you want to continue the conversation, if you want to add input, you know, add, give me your opinion or you know, criticize my opinion, whatever you want, you know, reach out to me on there. Uh, if you don't have a Twitter, I'm also on Facebook at J Robert Kinney. I usually use that page for my writing career. I have written two books, which are on Amazon called Precipice and Splintered State. You can find them there on Amazon to download either as Kindle or to buy as a hard copy. Uh, so please, you can reach me there as well. You can subscribe or follow my page on Facebook and you can contact me through that as well if you'd like to continue the conversation on that platform. Also, uh, if you're interested in supporting me or supporting this podcast, uh, you can check out my Patreon account. Uh, but if you're interested in advertising on the podcast as well, uh, you can get in contact with me through either of the other options. And I would be happy to talk with you more about that possibility of how, how to go about advertising on this. And finally, one last announcement, I promise. If you're interested in having me cover any specific topic or current event or historical event or anything international politics related, and I haven't covered it yet, please you know, get in contact with me and tell me what that is. I'd be happy to take requests if there's anything that people are really interested in. I'd be happy to put that into the rotation and throw it into a future episode. Uh, so if you're interested in, in having me cover anything specifically, let me know that as well. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and shut things down. I appreciate the time uh, you guys have taken to listen to this, and I will talk to you guys another time. Uh, so with that, this is Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney, and I am out in three, two, one.
one. 